You're listening to a podcast from Gateway Baptist Church, leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. If you'd like to join us or find out more, visit gatewaybaptist.com.au. Thanks, Tim. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Now, to start, just a little bit of, um, I guess, self-revelation for you all, if you don't know me. Um, my inner workings are a little bit like this. I have a tendency towards um, being hyper-self-critical um, with an exactingly high uh, self-expectation bordering on perfectionistic. So that's kind of just... Uh, what happens inside for me. To, to highlight this, uh, at my 21st, I thanked everyone for coming and uh, for being my friends. And uh, then I finished my uh, little speech by saying this, I know I'm not perfect yet, but hopefully I'll figure that out in the next 21 years. And uh, they say that every joke has a little bit of truth in it. And I think for me, the truth of that was I actually thought but by the time I got to 42, I would have attained some level of saintly moral perfection. Because, I mean, as we all know, 42 is basically the beginning of the end. So, you know, like, <laughs> I kind of hoped I would be there by now. I'm 32 and I got glasses in the last 12 months and my eyes are already failing me. And if you need any more evidence, Tim Lucas is 42. <laughs> I rest my case. But as you can imagine, being someone with... Uh, a tendency towards uh, self-criticism and exceedingly high uh, expectations. My relationship with New Year's resolutions is um, tense, would be the word. See, I want to make them so that I have goals and markers for the progress I'm making towards the better me, while at the same time being bitterly disappointed time and time again, since, to be frank, there's only one New Year's resolution I can ever remember keeping. Uh, and it's this one. I was uh, a youth pastor in my early 20s, and uh, I made a commitment to not buy any large fast food meals for a year. Um, the reason being, my um, wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, and I had noticed that I developed what she lovingly called a cookie sack, just um, here from obviously being a youth pastor where you sit around and you work from a desk and you go and grab coffee with people, um, but I figured there's no way I can completely cut fast food out of my diet because I'm a youth pastor in my early 20s. Where else am I going to meet my leaders for pastoral catch-ups? Where else am I going to go hang out with uh, the young people? And uh, what else am I going to eat after youth uh, on a Friday night? So because of this, I've grown a bit cynical towards the New Year's resolution because all it seems to do is remind me of all the ways I don't live up to my own expectations which is pretty demoralizing. And the truth is, it's mainly because I just have an incredible ability to make my life more complicated than it needs to be. And uh, while there are a lot of uncontrollable circumstances and some very uncontrollable people, uh, the real truth is that the most frustrating thing is my inability to control myself. Now, I don't know how many of you in this room uh, this year have made your own New Year's resolution, so I'm sorry if it feels like I'm having a go at them, uh, but I, I feel like they've just become a little bit less popular uh, in the last little while, mainly, I think, because we've all heard the statistics uh, over and over and over again that, you know, 23% of all people will give up on their New Year's resolution after a week which says something about our lack of perseverance as a culture, I would say. 47% uh, will give up after the first month, and only 9% of all New Year's resolutions that are made at the start of the year are ever fulfilled. 9%. 9%. 9%. 9%. 9%. 
not necessarily a great turnout. So instead, I, I've noticed this trend. We've started coming up with these things, like I have a theme for my new year. Some of you might be using that language yourself. I have a theme for my new year. Joy is my theme, you know? What does that even mean? You know, like I just want to laugh more, I want to smile more. Like, I think it's probably a little bit healthier for us, right? Like it's a little less like diligent and militant. It's a little bit more like spacious would be the word I would use in terms of what that can look like. But I would argue that all of us, whether we've made resolutions for this new year or not, know what things there are inside of ourselves and in our lives that we need to work on. Whether for some of you, you go, you know what, I need to be a little less angry. Maybe you have a little bit of a problem trying to control your temper. Because let's be real, phones should just function perfectly all the time. And when they don't, they should deserve to get thrown against the wall. Like, that's just how it goes. Maybe some of you want to be better savers, because as much as you try, you keep spending money. And sure, they're all great things. That latest holiday was worth it. But some of you have some larger goals that you would rather be saving for instead. Others, you may have a desire to have a better relationship with your kids or with your parents, but you find yourself judging them and their decisions or always getting a little too defensive whenever they make a comment that seems like the slightest disagreement with what we have decided to do. Others, we're here because we want to have a better relationship with God. It's why we're here. It's, you know, we're two weeks in a row. Normally we come every two or three, but two weeks in a row right at the start of the year, we're trying to read our Bible regularly, trying to pray more, all of these things. But, you know, there's a question like, is this really going to stick? Now, it might not be those things, but I'm sure every person in this room this morning goes, yeah, I've got some things that I'm working on. The challenge is that when we want to change something, we tend to really focus on it, and we become really aware of all the ways we don't live up to it. See, Thomas Merton, he was uh, an old Trappist monk. He has this quote that says, the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer, because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. The one who does the most to avoid suffering is, in the end, the one who suffers most. Which, if we were to use these examples and sub them in, you, can't, you might say it like this. The more you want to stop losing your temper, the more you realize the ways you get angry. Because smaller and more insignificant things begin to show you your underlying anger problem. The one who wants to control their temper is actually the one who is most aware of the ways they don't. Paul says something similar uh, in our relationship with God happens. He says in Romans 5.20 that God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Now, this is a, an interesting one-sentence summary of why God gave the law, but it's, it's more a byproduct. The law came into existence, not solely because God was like, I want you guys to see how terrible you are, thought I'd write it down for you so you could just see all the ways that you've fallen short. But rather, you know, God gave it to his people because he loved them and wanted to guide them into a life that brought individual and communal thriving. But the byproduct is because we've seen these standards, these expectations, this way of living, we also now can see how sinful we are in comparison. 
See, if you're following Jesus here today, then I imagine the areas you're wanting to work on in yourself may be influenced and hopefully have been influenced by who you see Jesus to be, how he lives, how he operates, how he behaves. Or it's been influenced by what you've read in you know, the Bible, the Word of God. There's been commandments that you've read or comments that Paul writes where you go, you know what, this is what it looks like for me to be more like Jesus, a more fully devoted follower of him. But here lies the paradox that we have to wrestle with. The more we become aware of the ways that we want to become better, the more we become aware of the ways that we don't measure up to our own expectations or God's expectations. And so the question we are asked and left with is what do we turn to when we don't live up to our or God's expectations? It's a great question because I think we do all respond differently, but I would say there's probably three common ways that we respond when we're dealing with this. The first would probably be this. Some of us might decide to respond with quiet resignation. We recognize that this is now our lot in life. I'm a hothead. It's who I am. I've got a temper problem. This is what I'm going to have to deal with. It's just who I am. I'm going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with it. There's no fixing it. I'm 55. It's for life. You know, like that's quiet resignation. For others of you, it might be uh, just a little bit of light mental self-flagellation. You know, just a real beating taking place up there in your old head of yours, listing all the ways you don't deserve to be loved, all the ways you're a failure, and a whole list of other self-condemning statements. A joy for us to sit with. Or some of us will do the exact opposite, and we will project pristine perfection. My life is good. I am good. And you can tell because my shoes are clean, my pants are ironed, my shirt is ironed, and my hair is done. I am perfect. My world is perfect. When really, there's a deep-set imposter syndrome simmering away under the surface there. Yet I believe there's another option, another way of living that we can trust in instead. See, in Romans 5.20, that encouraging verse from earlier about the law showing us how sinful we are, continues with Paul saying this, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. For Paul, he sees his failures not as defeating him, nor as fuel for self-rejection, nor as a need to cover up and be insecure about them, but rather for him, his failures are a reminder of God's incredible grace. He continues in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10 along a similar vein of thinking when he says, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Now, it's almost universally agreed that this is almost certainly some behavior that Paul knows to be sinful that he's struggling to overcome, can't seem to get on top of his, uh, on, top of on his own. Uh, he continues when he says this, Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. And whenever I read that last verse, I always just imagine Paul, because he's quite intense and he seems to be like a, a man who means what he says, that he actually does go around boasting in his weaknesses. Like he's walking in, meeting some new Christians who are part of the church in Galatia, like, welcome. Oh, it's great to meet you. My name's Paul. 
uh, I have a temper problem, you know, like, nice to meet you, that's me, uh, that's how I define myself. Oh, yes, I am an apostle, but it's my, it's my temper that's the real thing I'm proud of, you know, like, that's kind of his thing, or he's sitting with friends, and they're having coffee, and they're talking about their great business deals, and Paul's like, well, this week, uh, I lost my temper three or four times, a couple of holes in the walls, some of them weren't even at my house, you know, like, it's like, what do you mean boasting about these weaknesses? But it's, it's not this thing of him sitting there being like, look at all the ways I messed up. I'm so proud of it. Instead, it's, it's more this boasting in this growing realization that these are opportunities to remember his need for the grace of God and that he can rest in that instead. Now, I want to stop here and just actually and, and unify us around a definition of what I mean by this word grace. See, grace is a word that, isn't necessarily super uh, popular or well used in our context these days. In fact, if you look at the graph uh, behind me on the screen taken about the words grace, the word grace's usage in books on Google Books, you can actually see uh, that there was quite an uptick around the 1800s there, but it really declined through the 1900s there. And uh, we've just had a nice little uptick, obviously. Some people looking for some extra grace in the last uh, little while. But we're still not anywhere close to the 1840s or 50s, so hopefully we can get a bit more grace back in our common vernacular. But here is the best and simplest definition I think we should all agree on. God's grace is God extending to us undeserved favor. Simple as that. God's grace is God extending to us undeserved favor. Now, grace is commonly linked with the forgiveness of sins, which it definitely is, because as it says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, God saved you by his grace. God saved you by his extending of undeserved favor when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. This is all helpful for us to know. But how does this understanding about the importance of God's grace and what grace really means help us when we're still struggling with all the ways we fall short of our and God's expectations? How does it become something else we can trust in? Well, it comes back again to what Paul said in Romans 5, 20. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. Because for most of us, we will come to a point in our lives where we will commit an action or do something that feels so grievous to God and to ourselves that we feel like, you know what, like, that's it. We're no longer worthy of God's grace from this point forward. Or others of us have been struggling with the same thing for so long that we just go, you know what, surely God has given up on us because I've kind of given up on myself. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. He says, fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We have factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us. But the truth is the opposite, that as your sin has increased, that as you have sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace has become more and more abundant, that his grace has gone before you. Uh, a theologian called A.W. Tozer, when reflecting on this passage, said this, we must keep in mind that the grace of God is infinite and eternal. 
As it had no beginning, so it can have no end. And being an attribute of God, it is as boundless as infinitude. And so he goes on to say, although we feel our iniquities, our sin, our missing of the mark, rise over us like a mountain, the mountain nevertheless has definable boundaries. It is only so large. It is only so high. It weighs a certain amount and no more. But who shall define the limitless grace of God? See, this truth uh, hit home for me uh, the other month. Uh, I was reading uh, this chapter on the, on the grace of God in uh, Toza's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm driving in the car after reading it, you know, turn the music off because it was just kind of like blowing my mind and I'm just sitting there chewing on it uh, uh, mentally, uh, not physically, just like sitting there thinking, thinking, thinking. And all of a sudden it hits me. I'm driving this car ride and it's like God just gives me this, this metaphor for what I'm trying to unpack. He's like, it's like, this car that I'm sitting in right now, if this car was all of my sin, past, present, future, all of it, then the gateway motorway is the grace of God. It'll always, you know, be in front of me. It's always gone before me. And you think about like the roads. It's like once I turn off this, there's another road still and another road and it'll guide me all the way home from beginning to end. You know, like my car is my sin and the, the, the road is God's grace. And, you know, it's kind of like, wow, that like, you know, one of those ones where you're like, wow, that was quite profound for me, but could sound dumb to you right now as I'm saying it. But I tried to explain it to my wife that night. We, you know, we're sitting at a restaurant, Rachel and I, and, and um, we're, we're eating dinner, and I'm trying to think of the metaphor, and like, they bring out our, like, our burgers, and I'm like, maybe it's the burgers. I was like, no, burgers are too delicious. That won't quite work. It seems positive. So I'm like, let's imagine this booth that we're sitting in is our combined sin for all of our life. Then the restaurant we are sitting in is God's grace. We take up like 1% of that restaurant, right? And so for us here this morning, if this whole room's combined sin, all of our lives, all the times we've ever missed the mark, we've fallen short of our or God's expectations. If, let's say it's the size of Brisbane. Then God's grace is the Southern Hemisphere. I don't know if you've ever been on Google Maps at that kind of level of zoom out, but you can't even really make out where Brisbane is, let alone the nuances and, and details. But then it's, it's more than that. It's like if, if your sin is always attached, it's about your doing, it's the things that we do. God's grace is attached to your being, to who you are, to what defines you. Most mind-blowing part of all this, I think, is this, that if all of humanity decided to sin as frequently as we could in the most detestable ways possible, then turn to him at the end of human history and in one voice and with purity of heart asked for his forgiveness, he would grant it and we wouldn't have even made a dent in the amount of grace he has. It's hard to comprehend, but our sin is finite because we are finite beings. But God's grace is infinite because God is an infinite being. So we can rest in knowing that we can never outpace God's grace. We'll never run it dry. We'll never run in front of it. It will always be infinitely more than what we can do. 
It will be there waiting for us before we've even missed the mark, before we've even fallen short, because God's grace goes before you. It's there for you in these next few seconds, and it will be there for you decades from now. He's already there waiting for you. So this is what we can trust in instead, that when we miss the mark, the grace of God is already there. And the reason we can trust in the grace of God is that we can have confidence in his heart for us. See, sometimes we can know the grace of God and we know God has grace for us, but sometimes we don't trust his heart towards us, that he will continue to extend that grace. But we can look to Jesus speaking about the heart of God for humanity in John 3, 16, when he says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but shall have eternal life. That it was God's love for his people and how it compelled him to act so that his love and grace could be expressed and known by us. Paul then, along similar sentiments in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So we've heard from Jesus what God's heart is to us, but he didn't just tell us, he showed us through his death on the cross. The cross is both the defining act that made God's grace possible for us to receive and the physical expression, the action we can look back on and understand God's love for his people. It's how we know that not only does God have limitless grace, but that he actually wants to extend it to us. We know it because he died for us. He died it to show it then, and he still feels the same way towards us now. See, Dane Ortland again says, Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It's, it isn't as if his heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but has dissipated now that he is in heaven. It's not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but has now cooled down, settling back once more into kindly indifference. His heart is as drawn to his people now as ever it was in his incarnate state. The challenge is for us, at times we feel like we haven't experienced it. But the objective truth is that he has extended it to you. He has given it to you. So we can either choose to live from our felt experiences or from true reality. So you might not feel that you felt God's grace, but he has extended it to you. We know that because it goes before us and it goes on infinitely. We know this because he died on the cross to show us his love and he still feels the same way now. The hard truth may be that you're resisting it. See, for me in 2022, I, uh, I had to come face to face with some stuff in my life and I ended up taking four months uh, off work here. And uh, I came to realize that much of my way of thinking, my motivations, my actions were broken and sinful. And uh, I questioned the sincerity of my faith, I questioned the validity of my calling. And uh, to be frank, I, I actually don't know if there wasn't an area of my life that during that time wasn't revealed for not being what it should be. You know, Paul has this, uh, this famous passage in 1 Timothy 1.15 where Paul, the Apostle Paul, calls himself the chief of all sinners. And I felt like writing to him and saying, like, Paul, right now, 
That's me. Things, though, finally started to turn around for me about three months in when one night, talking to my wife, Rach, in tears, I prayed the most authentic, honest, and humiliating prayer I'd ever prayed, just asking for God's grace. And to be frank, I didn't have some profound moment of, you know, like opening my eyes and the presence of Jesus walking into the room and holding me or being transported up to the heavens and hearing from God himself. To be frank, I didn't even have anything mindly mind-blowing. Uh, rather, just what happened at the end of that, that time of prayer was I, I just, I knew I'd received the grace of God. The most eye-opening part was that I'd actually spent the previous three months not really praying, not really opening up the Bible. To be fair, I'd been cutting myself off from everyone, being ruthless to myself in my head, uh, all because I felt that I deserved to be cast off, that uh, I couldn't receive God's grace until I'd been put through enough suffering to warrant it. And uh, all of that, only to pray a simple prayer and know God had forgiven me. And only to look back over that time and realize that the whole time, the whole time I didn't think I was worthy of God's grace, all I'd ever been met with was grace. By him, by the people around me, and to actually look back and see that it was God's grace that had brought it all up in the first place so that we could clean it up together. See, my felt experience said, I don't deserve God's grace. The true reality was, I never did, but he gave it to me anyway. And I don't know where you are, this morning, but you might be sitting here feeling like, you know what, I don't deserve God's grace. Well, the truth is, you never did, but he gave it to you anyway. So hope your belief and faith is growing in light of what we've talked about, because you know, one thing I want to encourage in us is this, God's grace doesn't just cover your mistakes, God's grace actually gives you a helping hand going forward from them. See, Paul, after finishing Romans 5.20, can see, because he's basically said, you know, like, we keep sinning, but God's grace keeps expanding. God's grace keeps going. He can see that some people, and, you know, maybe some of us even here, you know, in this room or joining online, some of us uh, are thinking the same thing. Okay, so I can never exhaust God's grace. He'll always forgive me. Why bother changing? In fact, it sounds like a free pass. Paul knows that when we sometimes hear about how extravagant and generous and great God's grace is, we can misunderstand it. And all of a sudden, we've gone from not thinking we deserve it to thinking, oh, I can just do whatever I want. But Paul in chapter 6, verse 1, literally just a sentence or two after this, makes this comment. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin... How can we continue to live in it? See, Paul actually calls us not just to like, you know, oh yeah, like sin, it's, you know, grace will cover it. He actually calls us out of it to die to it and to live in something else instead, to live in grace. See, this die to sin language is important because death, if you think about it, actually sets us free from all contracts uh, we've made. You know, you can have a 30-year mortgage that you may owe a ton of money on, but uh, if you die the contract ends. I'm sure some banks might still come knocking, like, hey, you owe us a bit. But the contract's dead. Contract is over. That's why we say, till death do us part in marriage. There's like, there's a sense of finality to it. 
But that same reality extends to the contract that we've had with sin in our lives before Christ. That as Christians, as we say yes to Jesus, we say no to sin. We die to it. The contract with it has ended. We're raised instead to live in God's grace in relationship with God through his spirit. So God's grace gives us a helping hand by setting us free from the power and the authority that sin has had in our lives previously. Because the debt's paid. We don't owe anything from it, but not just that, the contract has been ripped up. See, the challenge for Christians is that once this happens, we go on the journey of the besetting sins within us being removed and us doing the work of not letting them back in to control us. Yet grace always gives us a helping hand by showing us how to live instead. See, Paul again in Titus 2, 11 to 12 says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. But he goes on, he says, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. It is God's grace that is gonna help you navigate your way through life as you work at following Jesus as best you can. See, it's gonna help you say no to losing your temper, even when the printer won't print. It will instead show you how to live a self-controlled and upright life, all the while covering you when you have the moments where you do lose your temper and you fall short of who you're trying to be. See, it's gonna help you say no to your worldly passions that have been driving your spending and instead help you to learn how to live with, fine, with your finances in such a way that bring glory to God. While grace will cover you for the moments that the new phone slowly makes its way into your pocket and you part with $2,000, even though you're gonna use all the same apps anyway. It's gonna help you to hold your tongue when you have something critical and judgmental to say to your kid or to listen and be gentle with your parent rather than get defensive and upset at them for an innocuous mistake, all the while giving you the grace you need to forgive them and yourself when it gets a little pear-shaped. See, it's gonna help you follow him by showing you how to live, by prompting you with reminders in your conscience and to give you new priorities, all the while covering you in such a way that you never have to back away from God, that you can be confident that he still loves you and that he wants you to be close to him. See, God's grace goes before you. God's grace comes from his heart for you. And God's grace will give you a helping hand. In 2024, there's no day you're going to go into, no month you're going to face, no moment that you will deal with that God's grace won't already be there. In 2024, you won't be able to outpace God's grace. There's infinitely more than you can imagine. And so as we come into land, we are going to partake in communion together as a church. But before we do that, I actually think it would be remiss of us if we didn't take a moment to provide an opportunity for those of you in the room or online who may never have made a decision to follow Jesus. You've never actually said, you know what, I, 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 I've missed the mark. I've fallen short and I need the grace of God right now. I need, I need Jesus to take my life. I need him to, to take control and I need his grace to forgive me and to help me as I move forward. And some of you, you actually, you may not have made that decision, but you're here in church because you're dealing with some stuff in your life right now. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know what? There's no way God could love me or my life's too messed up. 
or maybe the shame that you're carrying right now just feels too heavy for it to ever be lifted. But I hope that as we've unpacked how good God's grace is, how generous, how infinite it is, that those thoughts may have quieted a little, those feelings may have lifted. I hope you realize that you can't outpace God's grace, that His grace is infinite, it's extravagant, it's generous beyond, beyond comprehension. And so what I want to do is actually want to ask us to just close our eyes and, and bow our heads and, and we want to give an opportunity for those of you uh, in the room this morning who may not have made a decision to follow Jesus yet. You might be uh, watching online and you can do a similar thing. There will be a, a button that you can click that says, I've decided to follow Jesus. But if you're online, I'd love for you to click that button. But if you're here in the room, just would love for you to raise your hand where you are. When you raise your hand, you're very simply saying, you know what, I, I, I agree with this statement. I, 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 this is something I want. I'm identifying with it. I'd love for you to raise your hand so that I can see you and so that I can lead you in a prayer this morning. So if that's you, would you just raise your hand where you are just so I can see it, so you can say, look, I want that grace. I need that grace. That's great, I see that hand. I see that one as well. And up the back, I see that too. It's just an opportunity to say, hey, I need Jesus in my life. I need his grace. It's awesome. It's really great. Love that. Feel free to uh, just put your hands down now if you ha have had them raised. If you're uh, joining online, you've clicked that button. I'd love to just lead, uh, lead you in a prayer this morning. So I'm going to pray, and feel free to pray along in your head or just under your breath, and, uh, and then we will move into communion together. So if that was you, if you raised your hand, just, just follow after me. God, thank you so much for your grace, for your undeserved favor. God, thank you that you extend this grace to me generously, not against your will. God, I'm sorry for all the times I haven't lived up to your way of living. Would you forgive me for these? God, I give you my life and I ask that your grace would help me to walk in step with you. Help me to say no to what I need to say no to and help me say yes to you. Help me to trust in your grace when I don't quite get it right. Amen. Well, if you raised your hand, I'm super proud of you. Well done. It uh, can be significant and difficult to do sometimes in a crowd of people. But uh, if you did, we'd love to connect with you and to give you a gift. If, if that's you, we'd love for you to head out to the welcome desk after the service or to talk to one of the pastoral team uh, down the front here. If you click the button online, uh, I'd encourage you, click the uh, request prayer button, try and get in a chat with an online host. I'd love to talk with you, pray for you, support you as you make this next step. But for all of us in this room, and if you're online, you'll probably wanna grab some elements, some juice and some bread. Uh, we're gonna partake in communion together. See, communion is where we stop and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, which is the moment that we can always look back on and know that this is what made God's grace possible. And that this is the moment we can look back on and know that God has always wanted to extend His grace to us. It's a time to stop and reflect on the grace that you've been given for the past, for the present, and for the future, 
to remember that you're forgiven, clean and righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. So today I'm gonna ask us to just come down the front, grab the elements, the bread and the cup, head back to our seats, hold it. We're gonna pray together and then we'll take the elements to remember what Jesus has done for us. The band's gonna sing uh, just quietly over us as we do that. But would you please feel free, stand to, the, stand to your feet, come to the front or to the back, grab the elements, go back to your seat and we'll pray together in a moment. pray before we take these elements. Almighty and gracious God, we gather before you with hearts full of gratitude for your boundless grace. As we take the emblems, let us reflect on the sacrificial love of Christ. He offered his body and blood, not because we deserved it, but out of sheer love and grace. And so in this sacred act, we encounter the depth of your love and the immeasurable grace extended to us. May this time of reflection be a reminder of the grace you pour upon us. As it says in your word, for it is by grace you have been saved. 
through faith. And this is not from us, it is a gift from you, God. God, we come before you acknowledging our shortcomings and sins. In your grace, forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. We trust in your mercy and grace to restore and transform us. So Lord, bless these elements, the bread and the cup, that they may become for us a tangible expression of your love and grace. May we partake with humble hearts, recognizing the depth of your sacrificial love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us eat the bread, remembering the sacrifice that was made for us. And as we drink the juice, may we remember the blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Now I'd love to invite you to uh, stand as we finish with worship. We're gonna be singing this song, Lord, I Need You. A song that just reminds us of our dependency on God and His grace. It's not a song that's us kind of like calling out like, God, I need you, I need you, please. If I sing this loud enough, will you turn your ear and maybe just help me out? But rather, it's coming from a, a position, a, a, a sitting in our hearts and going, well, I already know that you have the grace I need. Lord, remind me how I need you, that you have everything I'm looking for, that you have everything that I need for these moments. So this be a song for you to just reflect, to sing, to maybe meet with God and ask for His grace, for maybe some of the things that are going on in your life. Just take this moment to continue to reflect on our need for Him and His grace. Lord, I come
Heavenly Father, we just uh, continue to confess we need you, Lord. Lord, that it is only by your grace that we are saved. Lord, it's only by your grace that we're sustained. And Lord, it's by your grace that we're helped forward to be more and more like you. God, I pray for each of us in this room and online, Lord, that we would be people who would continue to know your grace and trust in your grace. Lord, that we would recognize that it is infinitely more than what we do, the ways we mess up. Lord, that you never grow tired of us, you never grow weary of us. You love us and your grace is always extended to us. We pray, Lord, that as we step into this year, Lord, for the moments that things go sideways or pear-shaped or where we feel like we've fallen short and missed the mark, Lord, that we would not fall back into these other ways of, of relating to you, Lord. Distance, feeling like you're disappointed. Instead, Lord, we would just come to you immediately, just trusting in your grace and your kindness to us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. It's been great to have you here. Uh, please feel free to stick around, have a chat, head to the coffee shop, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on Friday at the campus launch or next Sunday. But obviously, if you need prayer, the pastoral team will be available down here as well after the service. So uh, please make use of that. We'll see you next Sunday. Thank you. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. We're a growing family, and if you'd like to discover more about where we meet in all our locations and online, visit gatewaybaptist.com.au.